Hello, and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Story Season 2. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and you love creating stories, or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. I am Lisa M. Lilly, author of the Awakening Supernatural Thriller series and the QC Davis Mysteries, and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. This Monday, we're talking about Season 2, Episode 5, Reptile Boy. In addition to the usual breakdown of the plot points, I will be talking about themes, the huge turning point for Giles and Buffy, some of the highlights from the DVD commentary by the writer and director of Reptile Boy, David Greenwald, and the first of many demon snakes that we will see in Buffy. As always, there will be no spoilers except at the end to talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. The initial opening conflict is quiet at first. Xander and Buffy are braiding Willow's hair as the three friends try to figure out what's happening in an Indian soap opera. The dialogue is in Hindi and there are no subtitles. Willow and Xander sort of complain about having no money and nothing to do. Buffy, though, says she's happy because it's quiet all over Sunnydale. We then move on to a significant conflict. About two and a half minutes in, we see a large house with many windows. A girl crashes through one on the upper floor, climbs down, and runs. Someone in a monk-like robe follows her, chasing as she runs through the trees, and climbs a wall to go into one of the many cemeteries in Sunnydale. In the cemetery, three guys in robes are chasing her, and yet another one appears in front of her and grabs her. He calls her Callie and tells her she can't get away. After taking his hood off, he looks right at the camera, so we cannot miss seeing his face. He's blonde and good-looking and looks to be around college age. This could be our story spark or inciting incident. This is a little bit early because normally that comes at about 10% through our story. Here, while it does set off a story, it does not set off the true arc of the episode, which has to do with Buffy and the choices that she makes. So we will see that happen a little bit later. For now, we switch to credits and come back to Cordelia. She is doing a fake laugh in the hall, practicing it, and explaining to her friend that Dr. Debbie says to draw in a boy or a man, you need to make serious eye contact and really listen and laugh at all his jokes. Buffy tells Willow as they walk down the hallway about a sexy dream she had about Angel. Willow says something like, oh, you two are so right for each other except for... And Buffy says except for him being a vampire and she's the slayer. Willow says they could go out for coffee. Um, She says it's not a date, it's a caffeinated beverage and calls it the non-relationship drink of choice. We get a nice back and forth quote here. Xander says, what's like a relationship? Buffy says, nothing I have. Xander overhears Cordelia talking about how she's dating college guys only, and they make fun of one another. 
But Cordelia gets in the last insult and she says, I just know your pizza delivery career will take you so many exciting places. Around 5 minutes 59 seconds in, so a little bit later than 10%, we get what I see as the true story spark or inciting incident of the episode. Buffy has said to her friends that she thinks Giles won't be upset that she's a little late for training because things have been so quiet. Giles takes a completely different position. He tells her that just because things are quiet doesn't mean she can slack off. That now is the time to patrol even more and train even harder. And Buffy says something like, okay, in the seven, in the five minutes between seven and 7.05 in the morning that I still have for me, can I do what I want then? I see this as the inciting incident because it will drive the choices Buffy makes. She feels very frustrated at being treated like a child and can be ordered around by everyone at the same time as she has all these adult responsibilities. So it will set her off to accept when Cordelia later invites her to a fraternity party. I had already been thinking this was the inciting incident, and then I watched the episode again with the DVD commentary by David Greenwald. He said that he thinks Buffy is at its best when the theme is clear. And here he says the theme is Buffy feeling like she's being treated like a child by the adults in her life, and she rebels against that and the terrible repercussions that has. Also that he sees Buffy here, like many teenagers, she's at the cusp of adulthood and yet still a child. And in my view, even tougher for Buffy because she has more responsibility than most adults ever have. Given that Greenwald sees this as the theme of the episode and what drives the story, I feel that confirms that this is the inciting incident. Giles pushing and pushing and pushing Buffy and also ordering her around because what he says to her, she's kind of pouting and he says, this isn't getting to me. We all have to do things we don't like and you will come for hand-to-hand training and you will patrol and he really does speak to her as if she is a little kid who is just being difficult and refusing to listen. He also ends by saying she needs to be there after school and don't dawdle with your friends. Of course, the next scene we see is Buffy outside after school. Willow and Xander are chatting with her, and they say, you know, hey, what are you doing? She's like, I'm dawdling with my friends. A very nice car pulls up. I wish I could tell you what kind, but I'm just not a car person. Richard is driving. He is the guy we saw in the cemetery that we got such a great look at his face. So we know it's him. And he has a friend in the passenger seat who will find out his name is Tom. Cordelia runs up to the car and she does her fake laugh when Richard asks her to come to a little get together at the house. Tom sees Buffy, and he's interested, so Richard says uh, to Cordelia, well, who's your friend? Cordelia says, she's not my friend, but when she realizes Tom wants to meet her, she quickly recovers and says, she's more like a sister, we're that close. Cordelia, looking unhappy, goes over to Buffy and says, the guys want to meet her, And we get another great back and forth. This is one of my quotes of the episode. Buffy, I don't really want to meet any fraternity boys. Cordelia, 
And if there was a God, don't you think he'd keep it that way? She drags Buffy over. Richard calls her sweetheart and is generally a jerk, and she turns to walk away. But Tom intervenes. He apologizes for Richard. He makes a few jokes. He's kind of self-deprecating. And he says he feels like adult standing there, and here he stands in all his doltishness. Xander is watching and saying she's going to walk away. She'll never fall for that. But Buffy seems to like Tom. He's a history major and a senior in college. He tells her he only joined the fraternity because it meant a lot to his father and grandfather. He asks her to come to the party, but Buffy says she can't. She's seeing someone. And Tom jokes about talking too much and rambling. In another great quote, Buffy says, you know, people underestimate the value of a good ramble. Giles comes out, points to his watch, very irritated, and she goes inside. We are nearing the first major plot point that turns the story in a new direction. I call it in my book, Super Simple Story Structure, and in the templates that I have available, I call it the one-quarter twist because quite often you see it exactly at one-quarter through a movie or a book. Here, I think it comes uh, quite a bit later, although there are some shifts here that could qualify. First, we see... Buffy in the graveyard and she finds a broken bracelet. Angel appears and he tells her there's blood on it and that he can smell it because there isn't enough to see. This is about 11 minutes 31 seconds in so that is a quarter way through roughly this 42 minute episode. And we have this emotional shift or turn in the emotional story because Buffy says something like, wouldn't it be funny to see each other when it wasn't about blood and violence? Angel says, oh, she means she wants to date and pretty soon she'll be asking him for coffee. And Buffy says, coffee? They have a back and forth. Angel is saying he's 241 years old. She's 16. Um, she says she can do the math. And he's telling her she's young. She doesn't know what she's she wants. He's trying to protect her. He also says things could get out of control. Buffy says, isn't that how it's supposed to be? Angel warns her it's not a fairy tale. When he kisses her, she's not going to wake up from a deep sleep. And Buffy says, no, when you kiss me, I want to die. They have this very dramatic moment and she runs away. That line really is not one of my favorites. I wish I could remember how I felt when I first watched it. Now it seems over the top and over dramatic, but is probably accurate to the very dramatic situation Buffy is in and that she is 16 and this is the first time she has really fallen in love. In the scene-by-scene -scene commentary, director and writer David Greenwalt said this was one of his favorite lines, and he pitched it to Joss Whedon, and he was so pleased when Joss agreed to use it. So he obviously felt this was a great line. It is, I think, a significant turn in the Buffy-Angel relationship. They have indirectly talked about their feelings to, towards each other, but this is the first explicit conversation about dating, having a relationship. Even the word dating tells you a lot because for Angel, it, what, what would that mean? He, he's not going to take her to a movie or take her out to dinner. So it truly highlights the difficulties. And it is a turn because this is 
a second person who's important to her in her life who Buffy loves and she wants a relationship with him a romantic relationship and he is kind of saying you're a kid you're too young you don't understand what's going on which is really frustrating and upsetting to her and makes her feel no one is taking her seriously. I still think, however, that our first major plot turn comes a little bit later. At 13 minutes 52 seconds in, Cordelia finds Buffy alone at school and says something like, did you lose weight in your hair? And then she says, okay, I respect you too much to lie in the hair. Well, that's not the point. Cordelia explains that Richard's fraternity needs some sort of balance at the party, but Cordelia was so busy really listening that she didn't hear him. All she knows is Buffy has to come or she can't go to the party. She tells Buffy she's not being selfish. She's thinking of all the good she could do with her money because this is Richard Anderson of Anderson Farms, Anderson Aeronautics, and Anderson Cosmetics, which brings Cordelia near tears at the thought. I see this as the one-quarter turn in the story because it's coming completely outside of Buffy. It's also something we wouldn't expect to see before this episode, Cordelia inviting Buffy not just to a party, but somewhere where she really wants to make an impression. Because while she liked Buffy in the beginning, and she does seem to admire her, she also views Buffy and her friends, uh, I want to say she called them lepers at some point, or one of her boyfriends did. So we wouldn't expect Cordelia to invite Buffy to something where Cordelia wants to build up her own popularity in herself. But she does. So at 14 minutes, 36 seconds in, Buffy says she'll go. And this takes the story entirely in a new direction. Because even though the finding of the bracelet would presumably prompt Buffy eventually to investigate, she wouldn't be at the fraternity party. Next, we see all these fraternity boys in the basement wearing robes, doing this ritual, and they're pledging themselves to Makita. In the commentary, David Greenwald said that it was really hard throughout the show to keep naming all these demons. He was really excited about what a great job he did coming up with Makita. And then later, he saw that name on some of the tools that the grips were carrying around, even though he spelled it different. I looked it up, and on IMDb, Makita is spelled M-A-C-H-I-D-A. Then I searched Google, and there is a tool maker Makita, which has to be what Greenwald was referring to. And interestingly, they spell it the way in my head I imagined it was spelled when I just heard it, which is M-A-K-I-T-A. Our fraternity guys are chanting, going through these rituals, and then they break out the beer when they're done. And we see that Callie is chained up in the basement. We switch to Buffy, Willow, and Xander talking. Buffy says that she's going to a fraternity party with Cordelia. Willow just, she says, Cordelia? And then asks if she sounded jealous because she's not. She also says she is worried about Buffy going. She has heard things about fraternity parties, that there's lots of drinking and maybe orgies and bad things happen there. Buffy, though, is focused on that nothing happened with Angel and nothing ever happens because he treats her like a child. Xander chimes in about how terrible that is, uh, criticizing Angel. 
until he realizes she's going to the party with Tom. And he says something like, Buffy, really? Frying pan fire. So we have a little more of jealous Xander, though I feel like he is funnier here in that he is so open about it. In the library, Buffy shows Giles the bracelet. Xander jumps in and says she should patrol that night and the rest of them should research. Giles agrees that she should do that. And Buffy says she's standing right here and she's not available. Then she tells Giles that she doesn't want to patrol tonight um, because she has a lot of homework and her mom isn't feeling well, and, well, to be honest, she's not feeling that well herself. I really like this line because it seems like the sort of overkill that someone who feels guilty about lying might do. She gives not just one excuse, but three of them. She throws in, to be honest, which, as a lawyer, when you're learning about preparing witnesses for trial or deposition, you learn that sometimes, to be honest, um, or to tell the truth, can be a cue that someone was lying in the other things they said or is about to tell the lie. Because most most of us, if we are generally honest, don't walk around telling people how honest we are. We don't need to do that. It can be just a verbal tick for some people that they've fallen in the habit of. But usually I tell my witnesses to try not to say that. Giles, though, uh, I I love that he's very concerned about Buffy and he says, oh, of course, you know, you should stay home. Willow is really upset about this. She doesn't tell on Buffy, but she is saying, you lied, you lied to Giles when they are out in the hall. Buffy says she just wants to have some fun for a change. So, of course, we get one of those cuts that I love where uh, we pick up on that and Cordelia is talking to Buffy and she says, this isn't about fun. It's about your duty. So it's a duty to help Cordelia achieve prosperity. She gives Buffy a list of rules to follow, what she can wear, what she can say, and Buffy bangs her head down on the table. Xander decides to go to the fraternity party to keep an eye on Buffy. And Willow says, you want to protect her? and show you're as good as those rich guys, and maybe catch an orgy. And he agrees, yes. I like these lines. They show the rule of three, which is often to say three things is very powerful. For whatever reason, that kind of sticks with people more, and it has a resonance. So that could also be part of why we got three excuses from Buffy. And here Willow has three things she says. And the last one is kind of the payoff of her joke. For whatever reason, you try it with four or with two, it just doesn't work quite as well. At the party, Richard comes up with drinks for Cordelia and Buffy. Buffy asks, is there alcohol in the drink? And he says, just a smidge. So she doesn't want to drink it. And he says, I understand. When I was your age, I wasn't into grown-up things either. This is so smarmy, and it's such a transparent attempt to manipulate Buffy. I'm glad that she doesn't fall for it, even though it hits on exactly what has been bothering her, that she has all this adult responsibility, yet is being treated as a child. I like to think it's because Richard is so transparent that Buffy sees what he's doing. Cordelia and Richard disappear, and they leave Buffy alone, and she's standing near a wall kind of awkwardly. A guy across the room lifts his glass to toast her, 
and she picks up her glass and sips it. This happens around 23 minutes in. As I talked about last week and every week, usually at the midpoint in a really well-structured story, we will see the protagonist fully commit, throw caution to the wind, or suffer a major reversal. Maybe you could see this as that throwing caution to the wind because Buffy is doing something she just refused to do by sipping that drink, but it it just doesn't feel big enough to me because I read it as, yeah, she feels really awkward and alone. She'll take this little sip of the drink because at least someone has sort of said hello to her and she'll look like she's fitting in a little more. But I don't see her as deciding, okay, I'm going to drink at this party. Another obnoxious fraternity guy intervenes, yells new girl, and comes charging drunkenly toward her. Tom appears and kind of sweeps her away, and they dance. In the meantime, Xander has snuck in a window. He looks more polished than we usually see him. He's got his hair combed back, he's wearing khakis and a polo shirt, and he almost, I think, blends in at this party. And he just misses seeing Buffy. About 25 minutes in, they're dancing. Tom says how glad he is Buffy came. And we again feel like maybe he is kind of a nicer guy because he can clearly see that Buffy is not happy about being there. And he also asks her, uh, remember she said she was seeing someone, and he says, oh, are you not seeing someone? And Buffy says, someone's not seeing me. So he says, okay, so, you know, why shouldn't you be here? She tries to say, uh, to explain, but of course she can't really explain, so she's talking vaguely about responsibility responsibilities and obligations and he says he likes that she's mature but there is such a thing as being too mature I love this manipulation by Tom. I don't mean I love that he does it but I like the way this is written. Years and years ago I read a book I want to say it was called The Gift of Fear. If I, if I can find it, I'll put a link in the show notes. In it, the author, who I believe ran a security company, was giving advice about how to avoid dangerous situations and how to spot predators. One of the things he highlighted is that this is the kind of thing that a predator will do. Acknowledge that, oh, you are being smart or cautious or whatever it is or mature, but, you know, you can you can overdo that. So if someone you don't really know offers to help carry something for you, um, and you might say, you know, I don't really know you, and the person would say, yeah, that's good. You're really cautious about strangers. You should be cautious. But there's a thing, such a thing as being too cautious, and and then you you don't let anyone help you. And it is a manipulation technique that the author said often works. So here we see Tom doing that, though we, we don't know yet that he is one of the guys who worships this Mikito. He has hit on what will work with Buffy because she says, oh, you think I'm too mature? So much better at it than Richard, who tried to make her feel like a child. We switch to Xander, who is joking with some girls. And Richard and his friends see him. Uh, one of his friends is that same obnoxious guy who yelled at Buffy. And they start yelling, new pledge, new pledge. Later, we'll, we'll see that the frat boy's idea of humiliating Xander, they dress him up in a wig, they put lipstick on him and a stuffed bra and make him dance. 
Something I like in this episode about Xander, I really think he puts up with this. He could just leave. Puts up with it because he really did come to see that Buffy and Cordelia are okay. And he has not seen Buffy yet, so he is staying, despite that you can tell he does not want to be here and he is uncomfortable. Buffy walks outside onto the terrace and steps on some broken glass. She looks up, sees the boarded up window, and she's holding a glass shard when Tom and Richard come out behind her. She drops the glass. Richard hands Tom a drink and Buffy a drink, and Tom makes a toast to maturity. Buffy says, what the hell, I'm tired of being mature, and she downs the drink. This is almost 27 minutes into the 42-minute episode. This is pretty late to see this throwing caution to the wind by the protagonist. But this, to me, is the moment because although she doesn't grasp how much danger she's putting herself in, she drinks this whole drink. And we definitely get the idea Buffy has not had much alcohol up to this point. And she definitely was going to go to this party, have fun, but not drink. So this, I think, is what would have been the midpoint commitment. My view on this was confirmed when I listened to Greenwald's commentary because he called this a crucial turning point. He also mentioned that the network had wanted to cut some of the Xander parts of the story, him being treated the way he is, and that Greenwald was very happy that he was able to fit it in. I can't help wondering, though I do like the Xander side of this story, if that's part of what throws off the um, structure here. I feel like this episode, I really like it, and yet it rarely stands out for me as a particularly strong episode. And I can't help thinking that it's that structure issue where we're, we're seeing particularly this midpoint commitment coming so late. That being said, I'm, I'm going to, what, give advice to David Greenwald, who has had these amazing shows. He was often directing Buffy and writing. He executive produced Angel. I mean, he's pretty much the one who ran that show, which was very popular and grim. I am no one to say that this doesn't work. I think that that is a good example, in fact, that whatever structure you use, there is a flexibility there. I talk about the story structure I think of as super simple story structure because it works for me to to look at these major points. And generally, if you put them at that one quarter, one half, three quarter mark, you keep your story moving along and you avoid that kind of um, sagging that can happen at the middle where a lot of writing they know their beginning and they know their ending and they may know a few big points on the way but they hit the middle and feel sort of stuck and don't know where to go and if you really focus on that major commitment or that major reversal for the protagonist it ensures that your story becomes more gripping at that point rather than flagging but this certainly shows You do not have to do it that way. There are a lot of different types of structure you can use. And clearly, Greenwald knows how to put good stories together, stories that uh, compel people and that people keep coming back to. 
Back at the library, Willow and Giles are trying to figure out where the bracelet came from. Willow discovers there is a missing girl from Kent Prep School, and we see a picture of Callie. They also eventually realize that one girl has been missing at the same time every year, so it's some sort of anniversary. Before that, though, at the party, we see Buffy stumbling, she's alone, she's near the stairs, and she seems very drunk, much more than anyone could be from one drink. She can't really see where she's going, everything is fuzzy. She sees Xander dancing, wearing that wig, but she doesn't recognize what's happening. She's bumping into things. And she climbs up the stairs and passes out on a bed. Richard comes in, turns her on her back, and he's touching her neck. And Tom appears in the doorway and yells at him and stops him. And for a second, we're meant to think he's a good guy. He's stopping Richard from assaulting Buffy. Well, he is stopping him, not because he's concerned about Buffy. He says Buffy is not there for Richard, but for the pleasure of the one they serve. And he says that's also true for the other one, and we see Cordelia on the floor. That is 29 minutes, 39 seconds in. This, to me, is the next major plot point. Usually it comes around three quarters through. It generally arises from that midpoint, either commitment or reversal, but it spins the story in yet another new direction. Here, it clearly comes from Buffy downing that drink and making that commitment to, I'm tired of being mature, I'm going to do what I want. Greenwald also commented on this point, and he said, in the best stories, Act 2 turns the story on its head, gives us this complete flip. He says the best example is the witch, where we learn that it's not Amy doing these spells and these things to the other girls, it's her mom in Amy's body. I agree that this is a great way to look at the shift to the last part of the story. Whether you divide it like I do in quarters and we have this, you know, flip it on its head, turn it for that last quarter, or you view it as a three-act structure. So probably you're familiar with this. The three-act structure looks at act one, which roughly is the first quarter or third of the story. Then there is a turn. Act two spans um, what I would see as the middle two quarters. And then act three, there's that spin, and act three is that last third or that last quarter of the story. So he's talking about that structure and saying, you know, at the end of act one or act two, you should have something that turns the story on its head. I really love that because I have always just thought about another new direction. Now I think I will look at it more as does it, can you make it just turn the whole story on its head? Here, there is definitely a turning on its head. He makes the point that we find out that Tom, who seems like the nice guy, is actually scarier than the scary guy, Richard, because Tom is a true believer. We find out the fraternity gets all the success and money and their alumni get it because they keep making these sacrifices. So I read Richard as he's doing it to get the benefits, but Tom seems like he really believes in Makita. He wants all the benefits, but he also is truly devoted. 
at the library, Giles is telling Willow they need to call Buffy. He he tried earlier saying, we got to call Buffy. And Willow said, no, no, remember, she's sick and her mom's sick. But when they find out about more girls missing, Giles is more determined to call Buffy because he wants to know where was that bracelet found. Willow says, call Angel. He'll know he was with Buffy. So she is still keeping Buffy's secret But we see her feeling more and more kind of frantic about it and struggling to come up with how does she head off Giles figuring this out. Back at the frat house, we see Xander being thrown out. They do give him his clothes, but they throw him out the door and make fun of him some more. In the basement now, Buffy and Cordelia are awake, but they are chained up next to Callie. And Greenwalt commented that it's pretty cheesy having girls chained up in the basement, but it's a very classic B-movie trope. Buffy tells Cordelia that those drinks were drugged. 31 minutes in, we see a ritual with three stones in a bag, and they are pulling them out. At first, it seems like maybe they're going to choose one of the girls, but then it's clear that it's just what order they'll be sacrificed in, and Buffy figures out that some sort of demon is going to come to them. There's this, uh, I guess it's like a pit towards the back of the wall and Cordelia is worried about being thrown into it. This comes at the actual three-quarter point of the story. So you could see this as the three-quarter turn, but I do think that that happened when Buffy passed out on the bed because that's when she became so vulnerable. That's what arose from that commitment she made to down that whole drink. And it's what puts her in this position where she cannot fight the way she normally could, not only to protect herself, but to protect these two other girls. And I believe it's the only way these frat boys could ever have gotten an advantage over Buffy. So what happens in this basement comes out of that and is part of that turn. Though if you argue that the real turn is, oh, it turns out they're sacrificing them to the demon, I suppose you could see it that way too because that does switch us from dealing with the frat boys to dealing with this demon. We did, however, as the audience, know about some sort of demon worship all along even though Buffy didn't know it. So this is another example to me of where the structure in this story is just a little bit fuzzy. It's it's not as clear a turning point as we sometimes see. But we do see definitely that there is an escalation of tensions and conflict and danger. The stakes have become higher and higher. And whatever story structure you use, Generally, you're going to start out with a conflict and whether it's the same conflict that escalates or we have increasingly serious conflicts, you are going to see that increasing tension, increasing danger throughout the story. There may be some ups and downs. There are moments where you have comic relief or you give your characters a little bit of a break. But overall, when you look at if you were to graph out the conflict, the line should be going on a diagonal and going up. And that is happening here because now we have these three girls chained, this demon that is going to arise, and Buffy in this position where she is weakened. 
at the library, Giles um, has called Angel. Angel is there in person. He tells them he found uh, that Buffy found the bracelet in the cemetery near the fraternity house. Here is where Willow finally tells Buffy's secret because now she has to to protect Buffy. And she says Buffy's there and she went there with Cordelia. Giles says, she lied to me. And Willow says, well, Angel says, did she have a date? Willow kind of hesitates. And then she gets mad at both of them and says, Buffy only went there because Angel brushed her off. And she turns to Giles and tells him that he is pushing Buffy too hard. Yes, she's the chosen one, but he's killing her with all the pressure. She is 16 going on 40. And then Willow turns back to Angel and says in a great quote, and you, I mean, you're going to live forever and you don't have time for a cup of coffee. And then she says, okay, I don't feel any better. And they still have to help Buffy. Greenwald said he loved seeing this side of Willow, that he always enjoys being able to show a new aspect of a character that we know well. And we see her getting angry and really telling off Giles and Angel and telling them things that they need to hear. They go to the fraternity house and they run into Xander. He is wearing one of the monk-like robes. He found it in the trash. Just before that, we had a really nice moment where he was walking and grumbling to himself about how one day he'd have money and prestige. And on that day, those guys would still have more. And then he saw Cordelia's car. She has Queen C on her license plate, which I love. So he stayed around. He looked in the windows. Um, he tells us he saw the guys in robes in the basement or heading for the basement. He found a robe in the trash and put it on. And he's thinking this will get him back into the house. Angel vamps out. He's ready to fight. And I love that Xander looks at him and expresses like admiration for him and respect for him. It's really nice to see that because he has been so petty and jealous about Angel. And I love seeing him realizing, hey, this is someone we want on our team. Xander's monk robe does get the guys inside to open up the door. He punches the first one he sees. It hurts his hand. But he got a good punch in, and there is fighting among all of them. Giles also is fighting. There's a funny moment where Xander is just wailing on the, the big obnoxious guy and yelling, like, this is for the lipstick, and this is for the bra, and this is for the last 16 years of my life. In the basement, a giant snake demon has risen from that pit, and Buffy tries to distract him from Cordelia. Tom tells her she can't speak to Makita. No woman is allowed to speak to him. Buffy finally breaks the chains. Upstairs, Willow is yelling at everyone like, Snake, basement, Buffy, because uh, I think Xander, Giles, and Angel have all gotten a little too absorbed in that fight with the frat boys. They uh, start running down the stairs in the basement during the fight. Um, Buffy has freed herself. Tom is fighting her. He's got a sword. And he's saying he's going to serve Buffy to the demon in pieces. And Buffy tells him, Tom, you talk too much. And she defeats him, but the snake still has Cordelia. 
Buffy uses the sword, severs the uh, demon snake from the rest of his tail, and he falls to the ground, or it. I don't know if it's a he, but it falls to the ground. And so our climax started, I think, with the fight when then the demon arose and Buffy struggled to free herself. And it played out through her both confronting Tom, who was the one who brought her into this, and the demon itself and slaying it. We then have Cordelia in the falling action. So our falling action wraps up whatever we have left hanging from our plot. So first we have Cordelia, a little bit of comedy. She says, you did it, you saved me. She runs toward Buffy, except Angel has come down the stairs. She isn't thanking Buffy. She's thanking Angel and she hugs him. And then she says, you guys, I just hate you guys. The weirdest things happen when you're around. And she tells Tom he's going to jail for 15,000 years. This is where I still get my mixed feelings for Cordelia because on the one hand, this whole episode, and Greenwald mentions this, that another theme in it is men sacrificing women to maintain their control and and enhance their power. And we have Cordelia still buying into this. She is the one who wanted to go to the frat party in the first place. She is all about achieving prosperity. Um, And Cordelia seems pretty prosperous already, but achieving prosperity by enticing or getting this frat boy. And now she is saved and she attributes it to Angel, who has done nothing but walk down the stairs. And yet I do love that she turns to Tom and says, you're going to jail for 15,000 years. I really love that. I also would give Cordelia a tiny bit of a pass because she was quite traumatized. Maybe she didn't really see what happened, so maybe she does think that Angel, Giles, and Willow burst in and save the day. Probably not, though. The really emotional falling action here, and and I so love it, is Buffy and Giles. Buffy says something like, I told one lie, I had one drink, and she's looking very sheepish. And Giles says, yes, and you were very nearly devoured by a giant demon snake. The words, let it be a lesson to you, are a tad redundant at this juncture. I think that has to be my quote of the episode and is yet another favorite Giles quote. In the commentary, Greenwald also noted this, and he said, yes, it is outright stating the theme or the moral of the episode, but he doesn't mind doing that if it has been earned emotionally. I think that is such a great point because normally I don't like when we get a story and then the writers have one of the characters tell us what it means. Here, though, I think it works for the exact reason that Greenwald said because we have earned it emotionally. We have seen Buffy go through this and Giles saying it seems so very true to his character and their relationship. Also, the other reason I think it works here is that that is not the end of it. That is not the lesson or the only lesson from this because Buffy says she's sorry and Giles says he is sorry too. This is a huge turning point for Giles and Buffy. He tells her he drives her so hard because he knows what she has to face. 
but he's not going to be so demanding in the future. He's not going to order her around that he has been doing that too much. So he says he'll just do an inordinate amount of nudging. It is the perfect parenting sort of reaction. I know Giles is not really her dad, but he is taking that role and he could just be angry. And it's it's a normal thing because you fear for that person you love that they have been in danger, they've almost died, and you're so afraid. It's, it's like when you see a kid runs into the street and the parent gets him back and yells at the child. And a lot of that is coming from that fear of what could have happened. So Giles could have reacted that way. And instead, he didn't just scold Buffy and and point out, like, see what happened. He also examined himself. He examined his role. He examined whether the way he was treating her contributed to this. He grasped that the way he'd been handling the relationship was going to cause harm to Buffy. Basically that Willow was right. He's driving her too hard and she can't be nothing but the slayer. She does, she is a person who needs to have more in her life. I feel like Giles, to some extent, has certainly recognized that before. But here he really sees that in his desire to protect her and help her, that sometimes that's going to be counterproductive and that he can't keep behaving that way. And I love that he is willing to admit that he made a mistake and to tell Buffy that and tell her he will change. At the bronze, the boy from Inca Mummy Girl, the one who the mummy uh, lured into the back and when it's going to suck the life out of him, he is getting a cappuccino that he brings to Cordelia. She chides him a bit because it is not quite perfect. It doesn't have the extra foam. So he goes back to get it and she says, thank you, Jonathan. So we find out his name. And she tells her friends that young men are the only way to go. At a table, Xander is reading the paper, all the fraternity boys. In an example, this is my comment of very speedy justice, have been sentenced to consecutive life sentences. Also, the past fraternity members who were very wealthy are now going broke. Their corporations are losing profits and their boardroom suicides. So we know that they were successful because of all these sacrifices. And then we get such a fantastic quote. Xander says, hmm, starve a snake, lose a fortune. I guess the rich really are different. Willow then asks if Buffy has heard from Angel and says um, how upset he was when he thought Buffy was in danger. And Xander says, does every conversation we have have to come around to that freak? Then he sees Angel walk up and he says, hey man, how you doing? I really like this Xander. I like that he is still a little snarky about Angel, but he's not going to hide that from Angel. He's he's willing to say it right up front when Angel, even when he sees Angel is there. But he also is sort of accepting Angel as part of the picture, as part of the group when he says that, how you doing? Angel says to Buffy, he noticed they serve coffee here and maybe she'd like to go out for coffee sometime. She says, yeah, sometime, and she'll let him know and walks away. And that is the end of the episode. There is some major foreshadowing here that I will talk about in the spoilers, so I hope that you will stay tuned for that. If you have not heard enough points about story structure, check out the free story structure template on my Patreon page. That's Patreon forward slash Lisa, M as in Marie, Lily, that's L-I-L-L-Y. 
You can also, if you prefer audio, can ask at your local library for um, them to take out for you super simple story structure, a quick guide to plotting and writing your novel by L.M. Lilly, or you can find it any place you normally buy audiobooks, including Audible. If you're not sticking around for spoilers, thank you so much for listening, and I hope to see you next Monday. And we're back for spoilers. When Cordelia makes that comment about, I just know your pizza delivery career will take you so many exciting places, it does foreshadow the struggles that Xander will have later. Unlike his friends, he doesn't go to college, and we see him in a variety of jobs. I don't know if he ever delivers pizzas, but he drives an ice cream truck. He tries selling uh, protein bars. He does a number of things trying to figure out what he can do to make a living and to get out of his parents' basement. It is such a scathing comment from Cordelia, the way she delivers it, and that also foreshadows that Xander will feel that he doesn't quite fit in with his friends anymore when they go to college and he is not there and his struggle to figure out what his path is. The other spoilers are mostly just a lot of fun. This snake monster is one of many demon snakes that we will see in Buffy, or also lizards that look like snakes, including the mayor in season three, who will turn into a giant snake demon. So it's sort of fun to see that right uh, from so early in the series. Also, this clearly foreshadows uh, other episodes about the evils of alcohol, particularly one of my least favorites, Beer Bad, which, like all the Buffy episodes, has some great moments, but Unlike all the Buffy episodes, it's just one that I almost never want to rewatch. Usually when I do, I still find it fun, but it is quite heavy-handed with the alcohol bad message. This is a sort of early version about how bad it is to drink. I noticed something that made me think early on with Tom when he says he's a history major. Well, who else of the guys that Buffy uh, becomes interested in is a history major but Parker Abrams, who is such a jerk, also a frat boy. While as far as I know, he did not worship a demon snake monster, he treats Buffy terribly. It makes me wonder if somebody in the writer's room has something against history majors, or is it just one of those default things that comes to mind? I think we all have that as writers, things that we put in for backgrounds of characters and don't always realize that we are repeating them for a particular kind of character. I just found it kind of fun that uh, Tom, the supposed nice guy, which is also kind of who Parker pretends to be nice and kind of funny and self-deprecating, and they're both history majors. Of course, the biggest foreshadowing is Jonathan, I mentioned last week as well. Greenwald in the commentary said that Danny Strong, who plays Jonathan, was a great comedic actor and he was a lot of fun to work with. So after the first time, they kept asking themselves as writers where else could they use the character of Jonathan so that they could have Danny back. 
I also looked up Danny Strong and Jonathan on Wikipedia, and here is what he said about the character development. He said he initially auditioned for the role of Xander, but he lost out to Nicholas Brendan. He appeared in the unaired Buffy the Vampire Slayer pilot in a bit part named Student. And he also said, I think everyone is sort of like Jonathan. Either they're like Jonathan or they're trying to cover up their Jonathan qualities. So that is it for the spoilers and for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you will come back next Monday when we talk about Halloween. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at Lisa M. Lilly, hashtag Buffy Story, or email me Lisa at LisaLilly.com. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC, copyright 2020. Mm-hmm.